Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning, and you can find it on page 1002 in the Pew Bibles. Have you ever noticed how much of our identity we find in people? Right? I mean, think about your family. How much of, of your life, like just the way you think, the, the things that you say, what you do, even your occupation has been influenced by your family. Like for me, I, I come from a family of farmers, car guys, and Cardinals fans, right? And the reality is I'm all of that. I just have a different kind of flock, right? I mean, you think about the King family, right? I'm like, if you're in the King family, you, you play an instrument or two or, or three or ten, right? And, and you've got to have bluegrass in your blood, right? It's kind of part of, of who you are. Um, who you are and, and part, being a part of your family can even affect how you, you spend your weekend, I remember hearing a story uh, from a man recently who was reflecting back on his years as a, as a teenager, right? And he, he wanted to go out and, and hang out and party with his friends because everybody else was doing it, right? You know, and so his dad sat him down and looked him straight in the eye and said, son, you're a Duncan, and Duncans don't do that, right? And I think my dad had that conversation with me at one, one time uh, when I was a teenager, I'm looking forward to having that conversation with my kids as well. You know, I, I, I earnestly want to look my kids in the eye and say, you know, Layden, you're a Daniels, and, and Daniels don't root for the Cubs, right? Um, I've already had that conversation with Gabe. But uh, I mean, think about how much of who you are is impacted by your family. Or maybe it wasn't your family. Maybe it was something like you had a particular hero, right? I grew up playing basketball, right? And, and uh, at the time, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls, that was it, you know? And so I wanted to play like Michael Jordan. And I would go out and I would practice over and over and over again. Now, I never got the whole air thing down, right? And I was never able to, I, I got the tongue thing, but just not the, the dunking from the free throw line, right? But I did develop a pretty decent fadeaway jumper. I mean, even now as a pastor, it's, it's real easy for me to, to look to guys like John Piper or, or Mark Dever for advice or for direction, and I think that if I just do what they did, then everything else is going to work out okay for me, right? I mean, that's, that's what we do with our heroes. We look to them, and, and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with it, right? There's nothing inherently wrong. I mean, certainly nothing inherently wrong with looking to your family, being influenced or impacted by your family, or looking to your heroes, all right, for direction, so long as they don't replace or surpass your identity in Christ. You see, in our passage this morning, we're going to read this letter to a bunch of Jewish Christians who are facing hardship and persecution. And though they desired to be faithful to God, in the midst of their suffering, they were beginning to turn from Jesus back to their identity as Jews, back to the family of Abraham, back to look at their heroes and the foundation of their faith towards Moses so often we can be tempted to do the very same thing. Now, maybe it's not Moses, right? But it's not Christ. 
But the author of Hebrews is reminding them and reminding us this morning that Jesus is superior to Moses. He's superior to family. He's superior to anyone or to anything else that we might be tempted to find our identity in. And so what we're going to see this morning from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is that who we are, though served by Moses, is established on Jesus. May our lives be founded upon him as we read Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We, who we are, though served by Moses, is established on Jesus. Now, I'm going to treat this passage a little bit out of order, out of sequence today, because the passage focuses on three relationships that we can be tempted to find our identity in, right? The house of God, Moses, and Jesus. And so we're going to look at each one of those in turn, right? And so first, who we are. Verse 1 gives us the second command to do something in all the book of Hebrews, right? Now, if you're one of those people that just loves application, it's just like, okay, just tell me what to do, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. You got to be hating Hebrews right now, right? Because the first command was given in chapter 2, right? After an entire chapter of this is who Jesus is, and it says, don't neglect this great salvation. And here we finally have the second command, the second imperative given to us now in chapter three, and it's just the second, the, the first command put positively, right? Don't neglect this great salvation. Instead, consider Jesus, right? And, and this is the theme throughout the book of Hebrews, but before we can deal with the command, we need to understand why. Why are they called to consider Jesus? What reasons are given for this command? And the first reason it gives is based upon who we are. It says, therefore, brothers. Right? Now, if you've ever been in our hermeneutics class or if you've heard me preach over and over again, I'm a big Big proponent of paying attention to those connecting words, right? That therefore is significant. It points us back upwards to chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, where it describes who we are and what our relationship with Christ looks like. Like those who are in faith, who have faith in Christ, are sons and daughters whom God is bringing into glory. That that is what He is doing in and through and for you right? Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers or sisters. That no matter what, what shame, no matter what guilt, no matter what suffering or hardship, no matter what has happened to you or what you have done, Jesus has covered all of your sin. He's not ashamed of you. 
Instead, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, leads us as the children of God in praise to our Father. And he so identifies with us. Our unashamed older brother so identifies with us that he partook in flesh and blood to be made like us in every single respect except without sin so that we, the offspring of Abraham, might have help in the midst of our temptation. And if you listen to that passage carefully, you hear a lot of family language, right? Son, daughter, brother, sister, offspring, children. Yes, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Yes, he is a superior word who has a superior glory. Yes, he is superior to angels. He offers us a superior salvation. Right? Yes, he is a superior master, a superior foundation for us to build our lives upon. Through him, we have a superior victory. But through him, we also have a superior identity. We have a superior family. We are part of a superior household. If you are in Christ, your first identity, the one that supersedes and defines them all, is the fact that you are his brother, that you are his sister, that we together are his family. That's what matters most. And that's why this passage says to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, this is who you are. And seven times in six verses, it refers to the house of God. Do you, do you see it there? Just, just take a quick scan. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. Seven times. And don't get thrown off by the builder analogy because when it says the house of God, it's not referring to a building like a tabernacle or a temple or, or this church building, right? You didn't enter into the house of God when you walked through the doors this morning right? That's not what the house of God is. This is just brick and mortar. Now, the house of God is something more, and you see it there in verse 6. You are always a part of the house of God by virtue of your relationship with Christ. Look at it. It says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are God's house. We are God's house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so we are children of God. We are the people of God. We are the house of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me just deal right up front with, with the condition clause right there because let's face it, these kinds of, of statements when looked at in isolation without even carefully looking at the text they find themselves in kind of lead us to the wrong conclusion. We begin to, to question or to doubt or to live in fear that, well, maybe I'm not really a son or daughter of God. Maybe Jesus really isn't my brother because of this condition because when I look at it, I feel like I fail over and over again. And so what we do is we fail to live and rest and hope and boast and have confidence in our true identity as God's family. And so here's the if statement, right? It's there, but what does it mean? 
right? What does it mean, if you hold fast? Is that really saying it's all about your effort and what you do? Let's think about it this way. What is our only hope as Christians? I mean, do you hope in yourself? Is it based upon who you are and what you do? Is it based upon some family connection that you have, like some in that you've got, some, some rituals that you perform, right? And what does it even mean to hope, right? Does it mean like what we often think it means in, in, in our cultural climate? Like, I, I hope I win the lottery, though I've never purchased a lottery ticket. No. The idea of hope in the Bible is an eager expectation. It's a confident assurance, right? It's like this. It's like you're at the airport and you're waiting for a plane to unload that you know has arrived. And you know that your loved one that you haven't seen for a long time is on that plane and you're just waiting for that moment when you see them and they see you and you can run together and get all huggy and weepy, right? That is what biblical hope is like. That eager expectation. And so who is your only hope? You? Your righteous deeds? No, our only hope is Jesus. Well, what about your ground for boasting, right? Because we're to hold fast if we hold fast to our, our, our boasting. Does that just mean our arrogant taunt, you know, that we just go around boasting about how great we are? Hey, God, look at me. I'm a pretty good guy. I did all this stuff. Well, no, that, that boasting, even that, is, is a declaration of who you are. It's not, a, it's not this braggadocious kind of a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a, an assurance, a confident assurance in who you are, that you are a child of God, right? My wife's not here. She's probably thinking about this right now. Uh, there's this song that comes on WBGL all the time, and it's like at the end of it, this, this woman is like, is, is like yell, scream, Scream singing, I am a child of God, and it always like it always throws me off. But like in light of this text, I think I need to go back and appreciate that that song some more, right? Because she's declaring, right? She's boasting and that she is a child of God. <clears throat> what about our confidence? Right? I mean, I know that we're a bunch of self-assured, seemingly self-sufficient people, but it is our confidence to stand before a holy God based upon who we think we are. No, our confidence is Jesus. You see, our hope, our boasting, our, our confidence is not in or ever could be in our own sense of righteousness in our own religious observance, in our own morality, in our own self-identity. Our only source of identity, our only means of salvation is that we hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast the way that you hold fast to a life preserver that's been thrown into the ocean in the midst of the storm. And you know that if you don't cling to that thing, you're going to drown, right? That's what it's talking about. It's talking about us clinging to Jesus, Holding fast to him. And so the passage says we are God's house if we cling to Jesus. Not if you get your act together. Not if you go through the religious motions. 
Not if you stop sinning. Not if you do everything right. Not if you're better than the guy next to you. Not because you performed your religious duties. Not as long as your theology is perfect. Not because of the types of people or the family that you identify with. No, we are God's house if we cling to Jesus. And notice that it doesn't say that we will be God's house if we cling to Jesus, but that we are God's house if we cling to Jesus. Your future is not dependent upon how well you perform. My status as a Daniel's is not dependent upon how I perform but on the fact that I hold fast to the name as my family holds fast to me. And so, who are God's house? It's not those who stop sinning or those who make themselves like Jesus on the outside, but those who hold fast to Jesus firm to the end because Jesus is holding fast to them. How do I know that I'm God's child? Let's face it, I, I sin, I have doubts, my heart is full of fear at times. I hate that I do it, but I do it. And if I'm honest, I do it. So how do I know that he is not ashamed to call me brother? It's because I cling to Jesus and not myself and not to anyone or to anything else. Because here's the thing. Who he says you are matters more than who you think you are or who others think you are. That's all that matters. And here's what God says you are back in verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And it's not like the writer of Hebrews is just kind of saying, okay, now I'm, I'm not addressing all of you brothers, but I'm addressing you segment of holy brothers, you who actually share in this heavenly calling. No, he's addressing them all. All believers in Christ, all from various walks of life, all dealing with their own sin struggles in various different ways. And he says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in this heavenly calling. So what does it mean? Does that mean that they've made themselves holy? Well, by no means, because we saw back in chapter 2, verse 11, that the reason why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers is because he, the one who sanctifies, that is the one who made holy, and those who he makes holy, those who are sanctified, all have one source. They all have one plan of redemption for the family of God. We don't sanctify ourselves. We don't cleanse ourselves. We don't make ourselves holy. Jesus does that. And you've got to get it. His blood and his blood alone cleanses and sanctifies God's children. And so God's own word says to us, therefore, holy brothers, if you are in Christ, his blood has cleansed you of all of your sin, past, present, and future. And through the Holy Spirit, 
According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we behold him, right, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And that work is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, not me. When God looks at you, He does not see filth. He does not see a wretched, defiled, broken, unworthy, disgraceful sinner. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Because of the sacrifice of our faithful older brother on our behalf, he sees holy children. In Christ, that is who you are. That's who you really are. And so the call is be who you now are in Jesus. Live in that identity. That's who you are. He's calling you holy brothers, not because he's trying to puff you up or trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He genuinely means it, not because of anything that you do, but because of what Christ has done. That's the whole point of that if clause. Be who you now are in Jesus. It's not threatening you that God will disown you if you do not get your act together. It's calling you to remember who you are in Christ and to live in that identity. But not only does he call us holy, but he assures us that if we are truly clinging to Christ, we share in, we are participants in this heavenly calling. And a heavenly calling is not the same as an earthly calling, right? Okay, an earthly calling is what, like what I'm doing to you. I'm pleading with you as human to human, right? Repent and believe the gospel. Hear these words, respond. Now you can hear the gospel from me over and over and over again. You can just hear it one time, reject it, leave it, never come back again. That's the earthly calling. That's the general calling that the gospel goes out to all people. But the heavenly calling is something different. Because passages like Romans eleven twenty nine 29 tell us that the gifts and calling are irrevocable. Meaning they can't be changed, can't be taken back. God will never be sorry for it. Those who are truly partakers in it will never end up regretting it or repenting of it or turning from it. It is irreversible. Now, I'm not really sure why I thought about this, but uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Keith and I were heading home one night from, after a meeting, and I'm driving along the golf course by my house when this dog suddenly bolts across in front of the van. And, and, and I look out the window, and you can see this woman is, is desperately chasing this, this crazy dog down, right? And the more that she would yell, and the more that she would chase, the more that this dog was having fun, turning it into a game, and would just go faster and faster and faster, right? And she, like, it's dark out. She's afraid this dog's going to get hit. I mean, we could have easily hit this dog, right? So we're there waiting until she finally, it looks like she got a hold of it. And then I start to drive on right? And we think it's good to go, but then I look in the side mirror, and, and suddenly I, I hear this woman screaming again, and I look in the side mirror, and there's that dog running right alongside the van, like right by my back tire, right? And I'm like, I'm going to hit this dog. So I stop, right? And I roll down the window, and I say, come here. 
And that dog leaps towards the van. Like his front paws are up there, right? And I don't even know that its back paws were on the ground. It didn't really matter because I reached around as that dog jumped and I grabbed that dog by the collar and I was not letting go. And that dog sat there as happy as could possibly be, hanging off the side of my van until that lady came and and was able to take the collar herself and then take the dog and get it back on the leash or whatever. We were able to drive on. Now, now this analogy fails in a number of ways, right? Because like the only way it would be accurate with what God does for us is if I were to take the dog home. Now, my kids would love that, right? They would totally, totally love that, but my wife would hate it, and I'm sure that I would end up regretting it deeply. And of course, I'm not pointing, like kind of suggesting that any of us are dogs, but, but this is the point. When God calls us, it's not like that owner chasing that dog around, yelling, 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 while that dog is turning rebellion into a game. The call of God being irrevocable is like my call, where that dog wanted in the van and I held it secure to the end. That is what it means to participate in this heavenly calling. We want to participate, and God's call is irrevocable. And so if you have been called by God, then that means that you are, you are his child. You are a member of his household. He has called you. He has adopted you. He has given you his name. Christ's blood has cleansed you. He has made you holy. And that is who you really are. And so be who you really are in Jesus. Because who we are, second, was served by Moses. Now, now, this might not seem very significant to us, but if we think about the original audience, these Jewish Christians who are struggling to be faithful to God in the midst of their suffering, right? We, it, it begins to make more sense to us because Moses was one of their heroes, one of the superstars of their faith. In fact, he would be considered the founder of their faith because it was during his ministry that God gave them the law, gave them the covenant, gave them the sacrificial system, gave them the tabernacle, gave them the priesthood. Everything they know in terms of Judaism came from him. And everything that we're going to talk about through the rest of Hebrews was founded not on Father Abraham or on Isaac or on Jacob or on Jesus, but on... On Moses. Moses was to Judaism what Muhammad is to Islam or Buddha is to Buddhism or Joseph Smith is to Mormonism. And so these Jewish Christians would say, yeah, Jesus is the founder of our salvation. He is the Christ. He is the deliverer from the line of David. But what about the faith of our people? Right? What about that 1,500 years of Jewish history and Jewish tradition and Jewish faith that preceded him, a faith that was founded on Moses. What are we to do with all of this history, all of this culture, all of this religion in light of Christ? And we, we can kind of get why that would be hard for them, right? It would be like the kings suddenly turn around saying, we're not doing instruments anymore, guys. We'll still sing. We'll still read music. But we're, we're going to 
kick off the first ever a cappella bluegrass band, right? It'd be hard. Now, you may not be a Jew, but we've all wrestled with this to some degree because we all have stories, right? We all have backgrounds. We all come from a particular origin, a particular family, a particular maybe ethnicity. We all have, have baggage. We all have experiences that have shaped us and formed us. And often we don't know what to do with that in light of Christ because let's face it, that's not all washed away in baptism, right? Sometimes we would love for that to be the case, right? Just blank slate, start again. But that's not what happens. I mean, even the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians referred to himself first as a Hebrew, a Pharisee, and a persecutor of the church before he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. And so God's grace changes, but it doesn't erase the story. So how do we view Moses in the Old Testament law in light of Christ? I mean, do we just throw it out? Do we nitpick it to death because of its problems and insufficiencies? I mean, people died apart from Christ while holding to it. And people still die apart from Christ while holding to it. And it almost makes us wish that Moses and the law were never, ever given because of how people were led astray. So, so what do we do with that? And what about Moses, right? I mean, who's this guy? I mean, like, the dude was far from perfect, right? I was, I was talking with Travis this week about it, and he, and he uh, rather amusingly and appropriately described Moses as a murderer with an anger issue who had no idea how to lead Israel, right? And that's a, that's a pretty accurate description of, of who Moses was. So what do we do with that? Like, what do we do with him? I mean, do we throw it all out? Should we, like the ancient heretic Marcion, rip anything that smacks of Old Testament Judaism from our Bibles? I hope you have already seen from the text that the answer is no, because chapter 2, chapter 5, or sorry, verse 2 and verse 5 both say that Moses was faithful in all God's house. And guys, even let that sink in, right? We, we so often think like Moses is this holy other, right? And he was in, in many respects, right? I mean, like, he was appointed by God, sent out to be the deliverer of God's people, right? He was a prophet. He was a priest, all that kind of stuff. But he was also a murderer. He was also an angry person. He was also frustrated and confused, right? He disobeyed God at Meribah, and as a result of his rebellion, he too was denied entrance into the promised land right alongside the rebellious generation who had wandered and died in the wilderness. And yet, Moses is described throughout Scripture as having been faithful in all God's house. I mean, that's literally a quote from Numbers 12. So Moses is still worthy of recognition. Moses is still worthy of, of glory. The writer of Hebrews is not saying, forget about all that Old Testament stuff. It's all irrelevant. It's all nullified. It's all abrogated. We, we now live in a later dispensation. No, Moses and with him, the law, the old covenant, and, and all of it was faithful in all of God's house. And here's just how faithful he was. 
Because the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was faithful to God just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And so both are worthy of glory. So then, what's the difference, right? Because there has to be a difference. If there's no difference, then what separates Christianity from Judaism, right? Do both of them equally lead us to God? Well, certainly not. I mean, the fact that we're reading this, this letter to the Hebrews is proof that there is a difference. And, and let's face it, we're going to spend a long time together working through those differences. But for right now, we'll just stick with what it says there in verse 5. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. And how did he serve in all God's house? Was it ultimately to establish the law and the covenants, the worship, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle? Was it to establish Israel as a nation, God's chosen possession over every other people or tribe or nation throughout the world in all time? No. He served faithfully in all God's house by, according to verse 5, testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was a faithful servant in all God's house by testifying to later revelation, to what would come after God's word to be spoken later. Moses pointed forward. How was Moses faithful in all God's house? He pointed forward. How is Moses, the murderer, the angry person, the confused person, the at times poor leader, faithful in all God's house? How is it that he can speak to the Lord face to face? He pointed forward. It's how he served. I mean, doesn't this draw your mind back to the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews when it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, including Moses, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets? like Moses, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. At a minimum, at its very least, Moses testifying to the things that were to be spoken later would be referenced to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses himself foretold that the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the New Testament repeatedly says Jesus is that prophet. Jesus is the one that Moses was referring to. But it's bigger than that. We're going to see that throughout the book of Hebrews as we work our way along. Moses and everything God established through Moses, whether it be the priesthood, the sacrifices, or the entire old covenant system, all testify to Jesus. In fact, the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, is one huge arrow pointing forward to the coming of Christ. That Moses in all the Old Testament faithfully served the house of God, the family of God, which includes you and me by testifying to Him. Friends, that's huge. We think about it, all of those stories, all of those people, all of those events, all of those institutions foreshadowing, preparing for, and pointing to the coming of Christ. Friends, this is why, as Christians, we read the Old Testament. 
right? It's not because we're boring nerds who really like maps or, or get really caught up in ancient ceremonial rules about like things like not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk or, or we just kind of make a game out of, out of being able to properly pronounce tongue-twisting genealogies. It's not why we go there. We do it because God, in his wisdom, designed that we would be better served by seeing how over and over and over again it all pointed to Jesus. Think about it. Century after century. Story after story. In history, in law, in prophecy, in wisdom, and in song, God has been speaking through his prophets like Moses who have faithfully served us by testifying to Jesus in thousands of different ways over thousands of years. God didn't have to do that, right? I mean, God could have just put up a billboard that glows, Jesus saves, Right? God could have rented the Goodyear blimp to go flying around John 3.16. Right? His story could have said, Jesus, the end. Right? Just like Tolkien could have left his story at, in the hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Or Frodo threw the ring into the fire of Mount Doom, the end. Now there is significance There is meaning, there is depth, there is richness, there is vastness, there is glory in the unfolding of the story. We are better served to see the glory of Christ in it. And that is why Moses and his ministry serves us faithfully. God in his infinite wisdom chose to reveal the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of the glory of Christ by taking thousands of years to show us who Jesus is and who we are in light of him. And that story we need to know, we need to meditate, we need to contemplate, we need to chew on, we need to unpack, and we need to tell. That's a story worthy of all glory. And so who we are, those served by Moses, third, is established on Jesus. Now finally, we're getting to the main point of the text, consider Jesus. But in reality, we've been considering Jesus all along. And the first thing that it says is to consider that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now I don't want you to get hung up on that term apostle, right? Because it just means sent one. Sometimes it's a title, like when it's referring to the Apostle Paul, but but this is in reference to how Jesus was appointed to be sent by God. He's the sent one. That's what it means here. And the point is this. Look, Moses was sent by God as a deliverer and as a priest, but Jesus is the sent one and high priest of our confession. He's better. He's greater. He's superior. 
He is the one that we make a profession of faith towards. Notice that we don't ever repent of our sin and trust and follow Moses, right? We're not baptized in the name of Moses. We don't ask in our membership interviews, are you trusting in Moses alone for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life? Right? And that's what the writer is trying to convey in this statement to these Hebrews. By turning back to Judaism, you are in danger of forgetting your own confession, your own profession of faith. We don't confess Moses, we confess Jesus. Jesus is our confession. Sure, Moses was faithful in all God's house, but as the builder, and notice in verse 4 that the builder of all things is God, so even this is a statement of Jesus' divinity, but as the builder, he, Jesus, is over God's house. Moses is in God's house. He's a part of God's house, but as the builder, Jesus is over it all. And as the builder, that means that Jesus made Moses. I mean, we get this analogy of a builder being worthy of more glory or honor than the building, right? I mean, think about, think about the Taj Mahal, right? Just to get an image in your head, if that's too culturally diverse for you. Uh, how about uh, Soldier Field in Chicago, right? Because nothing says architectural masterpiece like a building that looks like a spaceship crashed into a Roman Colosseum, right? And so whether you are beholding the wonder or you're wondering at what you behold, right, we get the idea that, that uh, the builder is worthy of more glory than the building, right? If you're there, I thought about bringing this up. I got a picture, like it's just a rendering of the church, right? But you don't, you don't walk into the building, right? Walk right past the architect, kind of push him aside and go and just marvel at, at a blueprint of the building on the wall, Right? wouldn't make sense. But often that's what we do. You're standing in a building, marveling at a rendering, ignoring the one who made it all. The builder is worthy of more glory. But in addition to that, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, testifying to Jesus. But Christ is faithful over, notice that, over God's house, including Moses, as a son. The one and only begotten son is worthy of more glory than a servant. And so Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. He is the confession of our faith. He is the builder of the house who rules over it as the one and only son. And and as verse 6 says, he is our confidence. He is our boasting. He is our hope. Not Moses, only Jesus. When you think about your own life, as the builder, God has made you. As a merciful and faithful high priest, he laid down his own life and rose again to redeem you from your sin. And so isn't it a better confession of your identity? Isn't it a better confidence? Isn't it a better reason for your boasting, a better hope than what you may be finding your identity in this morning? Jesus is the true confession. Faithful high priest, builder of God's house, one and only son. And so consider him. Friends, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. It's going to say it 
in dozens and dozens of different ways over and over and over again. Consider Jesus. It's the whole point of this sermon. It's the whole point that we want to convey to you and to each other. Consider Jesus. And friends, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean give a momentary glancing thought or try to stay awake during a weekly worship gathering. It means to carefully contemplate, to look intently and repeatedly, to thoroughly observe. It means to meditate or to think deeply on these things. Now, you may be here as someone who who does not profess faith in Christ. And if so, I just want you to know I'm really, really glad you're here. Love to be able to talk with you more about Jesus. But have you considered that if there is a God, and, and I'm, I'm guessing that because you're here, you, you at least considered that, that if there is a God, then he is a creator, having authority and power over all. And if he built it, he owns it. And if he made all, then that means that he made you. Have you considered the fact that if God has spoken from long ago, through men like Moses, who faithfully pointed forward to Jesus. And this has been going on from the very, very beginning, right? We read about it in in Genesis chapter 3 on. If this has been happening from Moses to now, then what does that tell us about the point of history and what it ultimately serves? That Jesus is the center of it all, that it's all been by him and through him and for him. And if Jesus came as a merciful and faithful high priest to cover the sins of his people, then that means that you, just like the rest of us, are a sinner whose only hope, whose only confidence, whose only reason for boasting would be in the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. To be counted among God's people through faith in him Because we all need holiness and the heavenly calling that only He can give. He offers you a new, true, eternally glorious identity, freed from all sin and all shame, to be counted among God's own beloved children, His own treasured possession, to be with Him forever. Friend, consider that. And if you are in Christ, if Christ is your confession, honestly, the implication is exactly the same. Right? We are going to hear this over and over again throughout Hebrews, whether it's put positively, like believe this, or, or rest in this, or listen to this, or behold this, or consider this, or fix your eyes on this, or it happens to be phrased negatively, like don't neglect this great salvation, or don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Our identity in Christ is not static, but dynamic. It's not something where it's just like we profess it one time and then we go on through our life like nothing else happens. It's a dynamic relationship. 
Though our adoption into God's house is eternally secure, being guarded through faith by God's power, it is a relationship that we are to find our true identity in. Though an adopted child's identity is secured in the judge's ruling, they don't look back at some certificate from the state for confidence in their relationship, right? Kids like like Ephraim or, or Haley, their identity won't be shaped or transformed simply because a piece of paper says what family they belong to. No, it's dynamic. As their parents love and invest in them, and as they love and invest in their family, their lives, right? They live in this new identity and are forever changed by that new identity. And the same is, is true with us. If your identity is in Christ, though rooted in the historical events in his life and in yours, it's not static. Your identity is shaped and it is transformed as you behold, as you love, as you fix your eyes on, as you consider Jesus. A stagnant, past-pointing relationship is neglecting this great salvation. Your identity in Christ is formed and ever deepened as you hold fast to him, as you fix your eyes on him, as you and as we together day after day consider him. As Samuel Rutherford once said, every day we may see some new thing in Christ because his love has neither brim nor bottom. Christ will never fail to satisfy if we will keep our eyes on him. In Christ, we are God's house. May we not fail to welcome, to love, to build one another up, and to help one another consider Jesus so that we might hold fast to our confession and our confidence and our boasting and our hope, clinging to Jesus, being served by all of God's word that points to him so that we might live in our true identity. Because who we are, though served by Moses, is established on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would make yourself known to us in ways that we cannot ignore. That you, in your mercy and in your grace towards us, would make it easy for us to fix our eyes on Jesus this morning so that we might learn what that means. Oh God, rid us of of this this tendency to look to ourselves or to some other form of identity other than Christ. Help us to behold the glory and wonder of who he is in new ways every morning. I pray that the gospel would never become dull or we would think that it would be better served if only it would stop telling me who Jesus is and start just telling me what to do. Because if there's one thing that we're going to do and what it's going to tell us to do, it's consider Jesus. He is our only hope, our only means of salvation. It's through him and him alone that we have life. We know this, we acknowledge this, and I pray that each of us would experience that this morning. And not just this morning, but every day. 
as we continue to set our eyes on him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.